When we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is reading over our shoulders. Whenever I get a passage that I know I'm going to preach on, I try and read it very early. And as often as not, as I read, something leaps off the page. And in this particular passage, the verse that leapt off the page was godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment, great gain. In chapter 3, we saw that the elder, or the overseer, had to have certain characteristics in their life. They had to be beyond reproach. They had to be loyal and faithful to their commitments, like a good husband or wife. They had to be living a life where their instincts and desires were fulfilled appropriately. Not denied, but fulfilled appropriately. They had to be honest and orderly, living in harmony. They had to be hospitable in its widest sense, embracing the plight of the stranger or the alien in their midst. And they had to honour and promote the spirit of righteousness rather than the letter of the law. At this point, we might think about this paragon of virtue and we have a little decision to make. Is this godliness or is it goodness? I want you just to spend two or three minutes on your table taking those two words and deciding what the difference is. What's the difference between a life that is good and a life that is godly? Your time starts now. You've started, but I'm not going to let you finish. Your time is up. I'm told I'm a, I'm a little hard to hear. My apologies. This is my encroaching deafness. I can hear me much louder than you can. Right. Could you do all those things that the elder was expected to do and not believe that Christ died for you? I think you could. You would be a goodly person, but you would not be a godly person. These, perhaps, are some of the outward signs of godliness. You could do them all and not be a Christian. You could do them all and not believe there was a God. So what is godliness? I think, and I don't know whether any of you thought, I think it is a life lived Godwards 
towards God. As far as we're capable, it's when we're living our lives for God. How do we do this? How do we learn? You may remember a couple of weeks ago in 1 Timothy 4, Paul said that training or exercise for godliness is important. How do we train? Where is the spiritual gymnasium? I think the spiritual gymnasium has three pieces of equipment in it. The first, as Psalm 19 says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The word of God. So we read and we learn more about God. We are directing our life towards him. Secondly, God's people. I'm sure, like me, many of you have role models within the church. People you admire, whose faith, whose commitment, whose loyalty you admire. But more, we learn together. We pray together, we meet God together, we struggle together, and we support each other when we do. The third piece of equipment, <coughs> the most valuable of the three, is the Holy Spirit. John 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have taught you. The words of Christ himself. And here we touch an important truth. When I'm reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit is reading over my shoulder and giving me a dig in the ribs here and there, godliness doesn't begin with us. When we're looking for physical fitness, it's up to us. We can go out jogging, or if you can't manage to jog, you can go out for a stiff walk. Or if, like me, you can't even manage a stiff walk, you'll go out for a slow one. But godliness doesn't work like that. Godliness begins with God, not with us. If you have that Bible still open, you could just look across the page at the beginning of the letter to Titus and see Paul saying, Knowledge of truth, and he means that Christ died for us, leads to godliness. If you look in Galatians, where Paul is writing to a church where people are desperate to complete the work of Christ in their own strength, by their own efforts, by works, Paul writes this, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works or by believing? And the Spirit will help us, as I said, as we read, as we pray. So the Spirit draws us ever closer into God's presence, assures us of God's love, leads us ever nearer to Christ.
And as we get nearer, as we get to know him better, so we grow in godliness. And this is a virtuous circle. You've heard of the vicious circle where something bad makes it even worse. Here's a virtuous one where something good makes it even better. The closer you get to Christ, the closer you want to get. The closer you want to get, the more you press in and get closer. A virtuous circle. But it's not always that simple. I can't just go out and jog to get fit. My knees are arthritic. My lungs are poor. I'll do myself some damage as like as not. We read quite regularly about men my sort of age who decide they can still play squash and they have a heart attack. And so it is with training for godliness. There are barriers, there are obstacles. And one of the biggest is that we might feel unworthy, that we might feel rubbish about ourselves. Paul berated the Galatians to remind them that the work of Christ is already complete. You are a new creation. The you that was unworthy, that was rubbish, that you died with Christ on the cross. And now Christ, the pinnacle of God's perfection, lives in you. The old you, the unworthy you, died with Christ. And now Christ, in all his perfection, lives in you. You cannot make yourself more worthy. Christ has already made you perfectly worthy. You will fail him. I will fail him occasionally, no, often. And it will grieve me. And it will grieve him. But he has already made good on my cry for forgiveness. He has already made restitution in full. I cannot, by my own efforts, make myself worthy. I cannot make it up to God. Why not? Because it's already been done. It is finished, he said on the cross. It is done already. Godliness lies in your heart, not your deeds. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And he didn't say those particular words just for the rhetorical effect. Think about it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Give your heart to God. Use your emotions. Love him with all your soul. 
Find out how your spirit communes with God. It might be prayer and meditation. It might be a walk on a mountaintop. It might be a poem or a piece of music. It might be worship. It might be reading. But find it and draw closer. Love him with all your soul. Love him with all your mind. Read. Think. God made us with brains for a reason. We're not supposed to check them out at the door when we come in here. We're supposed to use them to his glory. And finally, with all your strengths, your physical self, what are the things, the practical things that you can do for God? And I don't have to go very far in the Gospels to read for what you did for the least of one of these you did for me. God calls us to love our neighbours in the widest sense. But that starts with loving him. Heart, soul, mind, strength. So, maybe we can convince ourselves that we're on a path to godliness. But that's only half of what Paul said. Godliness with contentment, he said. Now here's your second task. Contentment. What is it? Is it the same as happiness? Is it something different? Three minutes. Contentment. What do you think it is? Right, I'm going to move you along now. I'm not immediately going to say what I think this is all about. Suffice it to say, in the first place, Paul makes this comment in the context of writing about the love of money. Because that was the problem for the Ephesian church that Timothy was looking after. The love of money. But it's not the only stumbling block to contentment. There are others. I'm sure if you stop and just think for 10 seconds, you will think of plenty. Let's just try that. What's stopping you being content? That will be something different for every one of us. Godliness implies a devotion to God. But godliness will not necessarily bring you contentment. In fact, for some people, it may do the exact opposite. How can I be content in a world that seems full of pain, of loneliness, of desertion, of childlessness, the suffering and death of a beloved parent, husband, child. How can I be content? 
It's one thing to be content with your bank balance or your clothes. It's quite another to reconcile godliness with contentment. If you're a young person whose parents are divorcing. If you're an older person whose children are divorcing. If your church splits. If your husband leaves. Your child rebels. Or maybe none of those things shows up in your life in the first place. How can I be content? The word that Paul uses for contentment, he only uses in one other place. And that's in the second letter to the Corinthians, where he says... And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Did you hear contentment in that verse? In Corinthians, the Greek word is translated sufficiency. All sufficiency. So we get an idea of what Paul is looking at here. Contentment can be thought of as having enough. Sufficiency. By grace I'm supplied with what I need. I have what I need for my current situation. But what is this sufficiency? What is this enough? that I have that will help me to bridge between godliness and contentment I think this is the truth of the gospel by which Christ makes all grace abound to us a grace that is sufficient for us to cope with everything life throws at us we have every spiritual blessing. God sees us wearing Christ's robes of righteousness. By grace, your spiritual bank account is full, if not overflowing. And that is enough to equip you for everything life throws at you. When I'm provoked to anger with my children, I am equipped. I have spiritual resources. When I'm sinned against by a close friend, I have spiritual resources. If there are conflicts in the church, I am equipped. When your children sin, you are equipped. When your husband fails you, you are equipped. When your loves, loved ones suffer, you are equipped. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. We are equipped. But being equipped doesn't mean passively accepting these things. It means God has supplied us what we need to deal with them, to meet them head on, to ride the storms of life, if you like, 
without foundering. And I think that is contentment, to face what life throws at us and to come through it all, knowing God loves us. If you search the internet for contentment, you will find a plethora of self-help guides. I've culled the best from some that Chris and I found, and you have a copy on your table. I'm not going to say anything about it other than these are simple, practical things. Some of them can be followed in a thoroughly godly fashion. Some of them are quite non-spiritual, but they are practical. And it may interest you to know that the long-term, the longitudinal studies done in the States and over here by university psychologists have shown that the people who profess themselves to be content, on average, live between seven and ten years longer. Or maybe, if you're discontent with this life, you move on through it to better things sooner. But that is not what Paul is driving at. Paul is driving at a devotion to God, coupled with confidence in his sufficient supply. And that those things together, drawing closer to Christ, knowing that I am supplied with everything I need to feel good about me being loved by God, about me being able to kneel before God, beside my Saviour, together saying, Our Father, our Father, not mine, not his, but our. We are loved more than we could possibly know. And in that love, I think, lies our contentment. Devotion to God, coupled with confidence in his sufficient supply, is great gain. I'm just going to ask Paul to come and play through the opening verses of that last song. Christ, my all in all. Christ is enough for me. He is sufficient. He is my contentment. <laughs>